it's not that they live 20 different years. They live the same year over and over again. And I purposed a long time ago that I want each year to be better than the last, but that was only going to happen if I was intentional and if I designed it. I wasn't going to drift to a different destination. Welcome to The Ziggler Show, where we inspire your true performance. I'm your host, Kevin Miller, and today we are talking about the year ahead of you and me, which can start at any time, but what will actually make it any different? Our guest today is famed author, blogger, and personality, Michael Hyatt. As you heard in the intro clip, how many people don't live progressive years of life, but simply relive the same year over and over again? Since you're listening to this show, we can assume that you're not an average person. You're an aspiring, achieving individual. However, the best of us can often find ourselves discouraged at the progress we are making. You are who this interview is for. It's an intriguing strategy that Michael gives us, focusing on his just-released book, Your Best Year Ever. If you don't know Michael, he is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Platform, Get Noticed in a Noisy World and the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Living Forward, a proven plan to stop drifting and get you the life you want. His newest book is, again, Your Best Year Ever, and it's what we dig into today. Michael gives us a structure to work our goals through to make them, one, specific, two, measurable, three, actionable, four, risky, five, time-keyed, six, exciting, seven, relevant. You want to know more about that? Listen to the show because we go over each one of those. I'm telling you, you will want to hear this. You can be a part of Michael's five days to your best year ever course at bestyearever.me and connect with all he has for you at michaelhyatt.com. Big thanks to the sponsors who helped bring you this show. Okay, folks. Mark, Tim, and I now bring you an incredible discussion with Michael Hyatt. Well, Michael, you are one of our few guests back on the show for a second time, and it could not be more warranted. Thanks for being here with us. Thanks, Kevin. Great to be on with you guys. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm glad to be with you too, uh, Michael. You know, we, uh, we have a good uh, good friendship here, but uh, I'm excited about your book coming out. So this is this is very cool for me to be here as well. Thanks, Mark. I'm excited you're with us as well. Yeah, I am too. It was a gift to go through this. I mean, goals, big part of Ziggler legacy, of course, but the way you've come at it is just brilliant on, on a few different levels. So I want to dig in, but what was interesting me, to me right off the bat is, so the book, Your Best Year Ever, The Five-Step Plan for Achieving Your Most Important Goals, you being the rock star in the publishing world, I could see you saying you know, how to be intentional and come at your book title with, uh, with great purpose, and yet this one was not one that you had laid out. It was uh, kind of pulled out from your staff, it looks like. Well, it actually was the title of a course that I've been teaching now for five years. And it really went back to a practice that I've been doing in my life for more than a decade, where that week between Christmas and New Year's, Mm -hmm. I would use it to kind of turn the corner and review what I had accomplished in the previous year, kind of close the books, pivot to the new year and design the new year. And for a lot of people, that's a brand new idea. You know, they kind of, it's not that they live. 20 different years, they live the same year over and over again. And I purposed a long time ago that I want each year to be better than the last, 
but that was only going to happen if I was intentional and if I designed it. I wasn't going to drift to a different destination. Well, and your your timing is awesome there because I mean you're not alone, you know, in your time frame. Right. You may be alone in how you go out about your time frame, but there are you and millions, if not billions, of people that start thinking about the new year around that time frame. The problem is, is that uh, it's it's not New Year's resolutions or New Year's goals. It's uh, what did what did you call it? New Year's hopes. Yeah. And, you know, and so it's it's about making that stick and actually mean something. Yeah, I mean, millions and millions of especially Americans will be making New Year's resolutions come the first of the year. And usually they're related to things like, you know, weight loss or paying down debt or stopping smoking or something like that. And people are really excited about it. But honestly, for the most part, it's just this kind of general aspiration that uh, and we know based on the science by about the 21st of January, most people are out of the race. And uh, you can see this gym memberships because by the 21st, stop a second, by the 21st January. Yeah. And, And for example, the media, this is really interesting. Like, so we're booking media for the book right now. And most of the media will happen right in that first week of January because people are very goal conscious, very on top of resolutions that very first week in January. But what the media has said to us, and again, it's based on the science, is that they want to have me back on the 21st, on that week of the 21st, because that's when we know people have given up. Wow. That's, that's significant. Well, well, yeah, on that, I mean, I, so I'm a word guy and you know, the word, the definition of resolution is a firm decision to do or not do something. And yeah, I hear you saying, well, you know, it's the, the resolution statement there is kind of a misnomer and what, to what you said, Mark, we, as I thought about it, it's, we really list out hopes, don't we? And those don't we do. stick. Well, th- well, think about this. You know, if, I don't know if you, if you guys go to a gym or work in your homes, but I, I happen to go to a gym. I always dread that first week in January because I know it's going to be hard to find a parking place because the gym will be full of what I call resoluters. And the resoluters <laughs> are the people that have gotten all amped up because they looked in the mirror on January the 2nd, the day after New Year's, and they're going like, oh my gosh, I need to lose 10, 20, 30 pounds, whatever, or I need to get out of debt, or this year's going to really be different, and they show up at the gym, and it's packed. You know, you can't get on the machines you want, all that, but I've learned that if I'll just be patient through attrition, those people will be gone. Most of them will be gone by the 21st, be plenty of parking, all the machines will be free, and it'll be back to the, you know, the, the people that are really committed to fitness. That, yeah. And I, and I read in the book and you talked about that, how quick people leave them that even after six months, only half are still going and ultimately less than 10% are, are ultimately successful, which brings me back. And I want everybody to, to, to think about this again, because I, it's stuck in my head here. What you just said a moment ago, most people don't live 10, 20, 30 years, but the same year over and over again. I don't think about it in that way. And it brings, it makes me think of the movie groundhog day and, uh, which I, I, I own, I do too. I own it. I, I absolutely love it. Um, but that's, that's convicting. And, uh, I think for some, it could even be a little, it's, I mean, maybe it should be a little discouraging. Yes. Yeah, it should be. You know, one of the things that, uh, I've learned from my coach, Dan Sullivan, is that you always want to make your future bigger than your past. And the reason for that, I mean, we've all met people that go in the opposite direction, right? You know, these are the people that are on Facebook that you went to high school with 
that are basically still in high school. Yeah. You know, they're still reliving their senior year because that was the peak of their life. You know, maybe they were the football captain or they were a cheerleader or whatever. And they're just, you know, really stuck in that or somebody that's retired that talks about the glory days of their career. Exactly. But the key to being energetic, the key to growing in your capability, the key to satisfaction is what Dan says, make your future bigger than your past so that you're always taking it up a notch every year and growing. Yeah, the glory days. I just wrote that down before you said that. It's always felt like a tragic thing for somebody to refer to that. Because if I went back to those time in my, that time in my life, I would much rather be here today, thank God. Well, you, you know, you start off describing how we often do start off strong with an initiative. Then we get derailed and fall short of our hopes. So in looking at excuses and just our own human psyche, do people, do you find that people generally feel like something came in, something came in and, and, and derailed them something externally, or are they kind of conscious that no, I just personally didn't see it through? Well, it's, it's probably a mixture of both. It depends on the person you're talking to, but it is remarkable how many people consider themselves a victim. In other words, what happened to them was because of something outside of their sphere of influence. And I mean, we have to acknowledge there are things that happen to us that are outside of our sphere of influence, right? But there's a whole lot more under our influence and under control than sometimes we'd like to admit. When I was the CEO of Thomas Nelson, I had an executive coach named Eileen. And one August, we missed our budget by, I don't know, several tens of thousands of dollars. And I was a little bit down about it. She came in for a consulting day and she said, and this was, by the way, in the middle of the recession. So she said, why did you miss your budget last month. And so I said, well, okay, we're in the middle of an economic recession. That's number one. The whole economy is down. Number two, my industry book retail is down. All retailers are facing challenges with consumers. And we just, you know, we're a victim of that. And third, all the technological change with social media and everything is really difficult to adapt about it or adapt to. So she thought for a minute, she was very kind, very empathetic, and she listened to me and she said, okay, I get that, but here's what I want to ask you. What was it about your leadership that led to that result? Wow. I mean, it really ticked me off. I said, what do you mean it was about my leadership? It had nothing to do with my leadership. It was all external. And she said, okay, I get those, that those things happen, but here's the problem. As long as it's out there, You can't do anything about it. You're just like a cork on the ocean. You're just floating with the current. But if you will take responsibility is, and she said, she said this, is there anything you would have done differently knowing what you know now, looking back on last month? I said, absolutely. I would have met with the sales manager. I would have found out our progress earlier in the month. I would have made some calls myself. There were a ton of things I could have done. She said, okay. So it was about your leadership. And I said, dang, you're right. It was about (laughs) Dang it. So, so taking responsibility is, is I think, a skill that we can all learn, and it, and it sets us free because out now all of a sudden, once I take responsibility for my results, even if, the, if, even if it's a failure, I can fix it because it's inside of my control. As long as it's out there, I can't do a thing in the world about it. So I got to ask you, because it's like, uh, you, you know, Michael, um, you can see behind me, I've got six kids and like taking personal responsibility is like way huge. I used to, I used to have like 18 pages of things I wanted my kids to learn before they left my house. Now I'm down to like three. Okay. And, <laughs> and, 
because you realize that, you know, if they can leave with just a couple core things, like they can feed their family, they can be successful. And so one of those things is taking personal responsibility. Why do we fear that so much? Why in, in all your time and meeting with people and whether it's a Thomas Nelson or now with best year ever, why is this concept of personal responsibility so tough? I, I think it depends on the type of personality. You know, some people, um, they just, they have such a fear of failure. You know, maybe they were punished for it when they were a kid. Maybe they were shamed when they failed. And so it, it's never been safe for them to fail. Mm. And so they have to deny that it's their responsibility. Um, another funny story when I was in Thomas Nelson, my predecessor, Sam Moore, had been there for 47 years before I became a CEO. and. He kind of had a mercurial personality. By the way, he's very good friends with uh, Zig Ziglar. But uh, sometimes he was up, sometimes he was down. People would always ask when they go into his office, ask his assistant, what's the weather? You know, is he going to be up or is he going to be down? <laughs> I found him to be very easy to work with based on this very thing, Mark. Guys that reported to him that didn't take responsibility when they failed, he would basically eat their face off. I mean, in yeah. public. He would just go after him because it made him crazy. And I and I get it. Having been a CEO, that makes me crazy too. I was always the first guy. And I, I just this was just self-defense for me. I was always the first guy when I when I failed to get an appointment with him and make sure that he heard it from me first. Mm-hmm. And then nice. he would do things. Like remember that that month I was telling you about when I missed August? I went into him as soon as I found out, and I said, um, Sam, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say we missed this last month. And he said, by how much? And I told him and he was like, oh, my gosh. And I said, I said, look, totally my fault. This was after the conversation with Eileen. Totally my fault. You know, there's a recession and all that stuff. But there's a lot of things I could have done differently. The good news is there's a lot of things I will do differently. So he thought about that for a minute and he looked at me and he said, Mike, he said, is Romans 828 still in the Bible, which is the verse that says, God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called in according to his purpose. And I said, yes, sir, it is. He said, we're going to be okay. And that was it. That was it. So it was to, about taking responsibility. And so I, I think one of the things that we can do as leaders in particular is take the sting out of failure, make it safe for people to fail so that, you know, we don't just excuse it. We make sure that they squeeze the juice out of the lessons but if we don't create an environment that's safe for failure, that's the kind of behavior that we're going to get. You know, one question more on that taking personal responsibility. This is an issue that's come up recently in some of our shows uh, just prior to this. Uh, we had a guest on that talked about treating everything as if it's your fault. It, going with the spirit of going ahead and taking personal responsibility. But I, we got feedback from folks that, that there's a struggle with with guilt and feeling at fault already, that it, it feels very daunting to, as, as Mark kind of attested to, to really embrace that. They may not have a leader above them that is going to make it safe. How can the people out here listening right now go with that, taking personal personal responsibility, even if there is a viable thing that they were victimized by to some degree, but to do that in a way that is not just heaping coals of guilt on themselves as well? Yeah, I think we have to be very careful and distinguish between traumatic events, like somebody that was raped or assaulted or something like that. I am not suggesting that those people need to take personal responsibility for what happened to them. 
Uh, there's a lot of things in life that happen to us that we weren't responsible for. But here's the key. Our response is something we can always take responsibility for. Now, we have to give each other grace, right? Because when something bad happens, it may take a period of time for people to recover. They may have to go through therapy. They may have to go through some process that enables them to kind of unbuckle from that and be free, especially traumatic experiences because it has an impact on our brain. But um, but beyond that, just for the run-of-the-mill failures that most of us go through, that's where I think if we can lean into those and we can kind of own it, then we have the possibility of actually improving and growing. But until we own it, that's not possible. Okay. All right. I well, love that. Yeah. I mean, you know, that just uh, – because what I hear you saying is, is that, you know, again, there, there's circumstances out of our control, but it's the – I, I set this goal to go to the gym three times a week and then I only made it once. And so, you know, now I'm done. I, I failed. So cross that off the list. You know, I'm, I'm done till next yeah. year. And what you're saying is it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't. And I, I think this is another helpful concept that I, that I got from Dan Sullivan. And um, it's the difference between the gap and the game. And Mark, I think I've shared this with you. Yeah, you have. I love that. If, if you don't mind, uh, is that in the book, by the way? Uh, actually, I can't remember. Yeah, it is actually the book. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, so share with the audience, cause I love this concept and it transforms your thinking. This is great. It really does. So when you're, when you're taking on a big goal, you know, you're looking out there and you look for where you are and you look at the distance between where you are and where you want to be. And that's the gap. And that's the appropriate time at the beginning of the pursuit of a goal to measure the gap. Now, as you pursue the goal and as you approach the deadline and as you hit the deadline, you know, whatever happens, happened. You know, maybe you set out to lose 20 pounds and you only lost 18. Or you wanted to save, you know, $5,000 and you saved $4,000. Or you wanted to increase your sales by 3% and you only hit two and a half, whatever it is. So now there's still a gap. But after you've achieved or after the deadline's passed, now it's no longer helpful to measure the gap. Now what you've got to do is measure the gain. This is huge. It's huge for leaders and it's huge for protecting our own confidence. Because, you know, if you had a, if you had a, uh, say, say you lost 18 pounds and you're trying to lose 20 and you dismiss that goal because you missed it by two pounds, you're really shortchanging yourself. And you're going to ding your confidence and you're probably going to throw goal setting out the window because you're going to convince yourself that it doesn't work. But how much would you have lost if you hadn't had a goal at all? Probably nothing. But at least with the goal, you lost 18 pounds. So in my company, for example, when we miss a goal, and we set big goals, so we miss goals frequently, we never beat ourselves up about it. You know, if we beat the goal, we celebrate. If we don't beat the goal, we turn right back around, measure the gain, and come up with a list of all the things that improved since the last time we launched that product or did that kind of initiative. We talk about the new capabilities that we have. That protects our personal confidence, and that protects the team's confidence. And again, that's a concept I learned from uh, Dan Sullivan, a strategic coach. It is in the book, and we cite him, and we got his permission to use it. I love it. Yeah, I do too. Measure the gain. I can see a, a book title. Maybe that's for you next year. Uh, I, I would well, buy I, that. Actually, Dan's got a book coming out on that called The Gap. In, I think it's called The Gap in the Game. Beauty. We'll have to have him on on the show. Well, I want to go in. In the book, you are based on five key assumptions. 
And folks, uh, there's your teaser because I'm not going to tell you number one and two. Go buy the thing uh, to get those. Go I wanna, buy the book. Yeah, go buy the book. I want to dive in. Number three was really interesting to me. Progress starts only when you get clear on where you are right now. And it sounds like a personal inventory that as I thought about it, I don't think I've ever had that given to me as an exercise for achieving goals. And due to that, I'm curious as to what the lack of taking that personal inventory, uh, what that adds into the probability of our failures in the goals we're going after. Great question. So you guys are probably like me. You use a GPS system anytime you're trying to find something. Like, yep. I don't even think I know how to read a map anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm definitely the kind of guy that gets lost easily. Yeah. Uh, I remember my father-in-law, he was like a map guy. You know, he, he would chart out a trip and he loved doing all that stuff. He would do alternative plans and all that. Well, now there's only two things you have to know for a GPS to work. You got to know where you're going and the GPS has to know where you're starting from your current location. If you know those two things, you can map a route to your destination. Well, the same is true with goal setting. You got to know where you want to go. In other words, you've got to have a clearly defined, very specific, measurable goal. And you have to know where you are. You have to face reality. I remember Jim Collins in his book, yeah. Good to Great, said, talked about the Stockdale paradox. And he talks about the men that were able to make it out of Vietnam who had been in prisoner of war camps. And one reporter asked him, he said, well, who were the guys that didn't make it out? And he said, well, that's easy. They were the optimists. What? I mean, that's very contrary to what I've ever heard. Very contrary. Yeah. And he said it was the optimists because they thought they would be released in, at Easter and Easter came and went and they weren't released. And then they said, well, we'll be released at the start of the fall. And that would come and go. They wouldn't be released. And then by, by Christmas, he said they eventually died of a broken heart. Wow. He said the ones that got out, that made it through, that endured all the torture, all the just stuff that you go through in a prisoner or war camp that is unimaginable to the rest of us. He said those were the people that did two things. They never lost hope that they would ultimately prevail and that that event would become the defining characteristic of their life. That was number one. So a belief in the future, belief that they would prevail. But number two, they were willing to face the brutal reality of their current existence. Mm. So they didn't uh, sugarcoat it. They didn't try to gloss it over. They accepted it for what it was. And that's like what I'm talking about here. You got to know your destination. You got to face your current reality. And if you do those two things, you can grow and achieve big goals. Okay, on, on that aspect of belief, the fourth thing in your assumption says you can improve any life domain. And folks, he goes through the life domains, but very has a lot of similarities to the Ziegler wheel of life, the, the, the important areas of your life. Uh, so having the belief that you can improve any life domain. And again, painting with a broad brush as people hear it, as I hear it, I think it's easy to nod my head to that. But when it comes down to the nitty gritty, do you find a reality that in truth, we often don't have a solid belief that we can change a certain area in our life? Yeah, I think the older I've, I've gotten, the more I realize that the greatest obstacles that we face in the pursuit of any goal are the ones that are between our ears. And so... I used to have this dog named Nelson, named him after Thomas Nelson when I was there. <laughs> and uh, I thought it would be a cute name, but we didn't have a fence in our yard at that time. And Nelson would often bolt out of the yard or out of the front door. And we'd spend the next you know, couple of hours trying to chase him down. So finally we got smart. We couldn't build a fence at the time, but we discovered invisible fence. Yeah. 
So we buried one of those in, in the yard. And the way those work is that when the dog has a special leech, leash on and or a collar on and approaches that perimeter, that wire that's buried in the ground, he gets a little vibration on his neck. And it's just enough to kind of startle him. And so you train him through this process. It doesn't take very long. Where when he approaches the barrier, he immediately backs off. Well, Nelson was so trained with this that we could stand on the other side of the barrier with his collar off. So he didn't have a collar on. And we would beckon him to come to us. The grandkids would have treats. He wouldn't budge. Now, the question is, where was the invisible fence? Because it wasn't working because he didn't have the collar on. There was nothing to conduct that electricity so that there was a vibration. The barrier had moved from the invisible fence to his mind. So now the fence was between his ears. And a lot of people have that kind of barrier or obstacle as they're thinking about some area of their life. And I hear it all the time. They have these limiting beliefs. Sometimes they're global, like, you know, I can't succeed in this economy, or I can't succeed under the current president, or maybe it's something about other people. You know, that person won't give me the time of day because I'm just a, you know, I'm a bean counter. They diminish themselves in some way. The, the most damaging limiting beliefs, though, are the ones that we have about ourselves. You know, things like, and I hear these all the time, I'm not technologically inclined, or I'm too old to get hired, or the reverse, I'm too young to get hired, or I'm overeducated. I mean, all these things, these don't exist out there. They exist in here. And one of the things that I do in the book is I have a process for really kind of looking in the mirror and evaluating whether something is objectively true or whether it's really a limiting belief. And the key is to take those limiting beliefs and transform them into liberating truths. So, for example, to the guy, and I had a friend of mine who was unemployed for six years, and the story that he was telling himself, the belief he was telling himself, was that he was too old. You know, he was in his 50s. Nobody wanted to hire him. And I said, okay, let's transform that into a liberating belief. The truth is you have more experience than all these young people that are trying to get hired. You've made a lot of mistakes. You've seen it all. You've got wisdom. You've got perspective. So you've got way more to offer to an employer than somebody that's fresh out of school. But I've also heard the opposite for the person who says, well, I can't get hired because I'm not, I'm not old enough. I'm too young. Well, what if the liberating truth was I have the energy of youth? I have the stamina of youth. I'm willing to work harder, work longer, make stuff happen. Again, it comes back to your beliefs. You know, I one of my favorite quotes, Michael, is that uh, from Zig Ziglar, and it, it's just one that I've really hung my hat on with uh, with my staff, with me personally, and with my kids. Is you can change who you are and where you are by changing one thing, and that's what goes into your mind. Yeah. You can do it by reading. You can do it by consuming books. You can go out and buy your book, Best Year Ever, and change what goes into your mind. But in some cases, it's literally changing the perspective in your mind. Yes. You can change who you are and where you are by changing one thing. And it's not where you live. It's not your age. You change simply what's between your ears, and you can change everything. Totally. Yep. Well, I want to, so I'm going to ask on that beliefs because as I was reading through the book, I, I really began dwelling on that a lot and just thinking through about beliefs because your another assumption, I guess, uh, that I think we make in the personal development world is that our beliefs 
are malleable, but I don't see us as a culture. It seems like, you know, our, the question, our beliefs, truth or, or perspective. And we're having that talk here, but is it worth getting out on the table that by proxy, a belief is something that I believe because I believe it to be truth. And until I question that or allow that to be questionable, I'm probably going to be stuck. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the way I look at it, there's what happens to you, but the more important thing is the meaning that I assign to what happens to me. So two people can go through a completely different experience or through the same experience and come to opposite conclusions. In fact, Kevin, your dad has an amazing talk about this when he describes these two people who grew up in the same household. You know the talk I'm I do. talking about. I do. And I won't get it exactly right. But the first one is the kid who's deprived. He grows up in this very religious, religiously rigid, rigorous uh, background or rigid background, and he can't do anything. He's deprived of most of the creature comforts that everybody else takes for comfort. Mm-hmm. So there's that one guy. And then there's another guy who has all this time for reading and exploring and spends a lot of time outdoors. And at the end of the story, your dad says, this is the same guy. It's me. It's just a different perspective on how I grew up. It is. And that one rings close to home because I was uh, born young enough to be privy to some of his transition into that. And some, I think, and and I won't speak for him, but I perceived a bitterness towards some of, of what he had. And yet then over here, I see that now he realizes that what happened here prepared him to be the man and the influencer that he is today. It's been a dramatic influence on my life to see that, Michael. Yeah, it's such a great story. And he's such a great example of that. He is. He is. I got to see him and my mom did that in her book as well, uh, told those stories. Uh, Well, you make a big statement in the book that is what you made it a big statement. It's literally, you you pulled a page out and stuck it there. Resources are never, and I mean, never the main challenge in in achieving our dreams. I mean, that's just flat out a controversial statement. That's got to get you some kickback. So give us a little bit more on that one. Well, I intended to be controversial because I think that people limit their vision, limit what they can achieve in life because they think about the resources first and not the vision first. And the truth is this, in my experience, the resources don't show up until the vision is clear. The resources don't show up until the vision is clear. I mean, think of it this way. If you don't know what you want, why do you need resources? It's never happened to me that an investor or anybody else has, has come to my front door and said, hey, I don't know what you want to achieve in life, but here's a big pile of money, figure it out and do what you want with it. No, you know, it's vision that attracts resources. And so if we would spend more time getting clear on our vision, I think we'd more often find that the resources show up. So I was having um, a talk with my former pastor about this back when he was a pastor, he's now retired. And um, his thinking about the size of the church was that we couldn't build a church any bigger than we were going to build because we didn't have the resources to build anymore. And I just said to him, I said, no, that's backwards. That's not how it works. Here's how it works. We got to decide what we need, decide what we want, and then trust God to provide the resources. And that's exactly what happened. If we think we're going to go to the resources first and we're going to create a future out of those resources, it's going to be very small because the resources we have now 
are sufficient for the vision that we have. If we want more resources, we got to have a bigger vision. Okay, that's really interesting. I am in the process of, a, of, a, of another business startup and in talking with investors, that is what is happening. Every phone call is just a step towards, well, heck, we got to get this other thing figured out so that we're a little more clear on the vision. So thank you for the, uh, uh, the follow-up on that. Folks, again, hear that. The resources don't show up until the vision is clear. Well, back into beliefs here, you talk about, uh, you have listed complete the past. And again, I mean, you really had me chewing on beliefs and it dawned on me that, yeah, I mean, every belief that I have is based on the past, whether it's a moment ago or whether it's 20 years ago. I mean, how much, and it got me to thinking again, in the reality of beliefs, which we know are so crippling or empowering, how much of our beliefs are based on our early past thoughts from childhood into formative years that are still the basis for the majority of our belief system that I'm a 46 year old male living within the beliefs, the, the majority of beliefs that I might have created at the age of 10. Is that a, is that a truth? Yeah, I think that that is true. And when I talk about completing the past, I want you to be able to put the past to bed, get closure on the past so that it, that it doesn't inhibit the best of what could be in your future. And Tony Robbins says it this way. He says, your future does not equal your past. And it doesn't. You know, we see this all the time. You know, the, the, the best stories that we love are somebody that had some really inhibiting or limiting past who were, they were able to overcome that by what they believed and by what they did. It's, by the way, it's not just your beliefs. Your beliefs are important, but it's got to transmit into your behavior. You know, I don't, I don't really endorse the concept of kind of the secret where you just have a different belief system and kind of attract all this stuff. You got to actually do some work. Okay. So, um, yeah. So completing the past and particularly in this context of designing your best year ever, I think what it really means is looking back over this past year, particularly probably not the, the way back past. If you have issues there that you need to deal with, again, I think there is a real case to be made for therapy or for processing that. If you feel like you're stuck because of something traumatic that happened in your past, there are so many resources today that can help you. You do not have to stay stuck. And that's what I want to say to people that are listening to this. If you've got chronic depression, if you've got you know uncontrollable anxiety, all that stuff, there's so many resources. Don't let that keep you from achieving what you want in the future. You've got to, you've got to deal with it because unless you do deal with it, it is going to inhibit your future. But what I'm talking about in the book is looking back over this last year and kind of completing the chapter. You know, and I, and I run through a series of eight questions that you can ask yourself. Things like, what was I the most proud of this last year? And literally to list those things out, especially for people probably that listen to this show who are high achievers, who as soon as they check off something on their list, they go right on to the next thing without celebrating or without rewarding themselves for, or even acknowledging themselves for what they accomplished. So that's a great question to ask. What am I most proud of that happened this last year? But here's another great question. Um, what do I feel I should have been acknowledged for this last year, but I wasn't? Wow. You know, and this could be somebody who really fought to save their marriage and they really, maybe they weren't successful. They really weren't acknowledged for the effort they made. Um, or they did something at work. And for whatever reason, they have a super supervisor that's a little bit of a knucklehead and uh, just didn't acknowledge what they achieved. But I think it's just a great way to say, yeah, I did that. 
And I'm proud of that. And I wasn't acknowledged for it. And I'm not going to blame anybody else, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to put that down because I don't want to drag that into the future. What were my biggest disappointments from last year? These are, these are questions of reflection. Another question to ask, what were the recurring themes that happened this past year? Because sometimes we can discern a pattern in the things that happened that can actually end up being a springboard for our greatest successes in the future so that we don't dwell in regret, but so that we acknowledge those patterns and go, for example, one, a couple of years ago, one of my biggest patterns was that I was overcommitted. And that kept happening over and over again. Talk about Groundhog Day. I felt like I kept living in Groundhog Day where I had no margin in my life. And so as I began to frame up my goals for the next year, that became a theme that I really wanted to press into in terms of gaining more margin and not working so much. So can I, can I jump in there, Michael? Because uh, one of the words you used there was regret. And, you know, when talking about the past, you know, you, you talked about regrets and it's a topic that our culture seems to applaud success being no regrets. Uh, I've never really been of this camp, you know, redemption is a real thing, but I absolutely have regrets. You actually say in the book, regret reveals opportunity. Then you make another big statement that, and I think, I think this is what you said in the book, the only people with no hope are those with no regrets. Now, you're just kind of messing up all the movie <laughs> scenes out there of no regrets. So help us unpack this, because again, it's a little counterintuitive to what we see played out in Hollywood or in social media. And so unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah, so if I say I have no regrets, what I'm really saying is that I achieved everything. Hmm. You know, there's no gap between sort of this ideal, this better future, and where I'm at now. And so the thing about a regret is it really tells us that hope is still alive, that that there's something else that we aspire to. We didn't aspire to it. Now, here's the thing. We don't have to to beat ourselves up about it, but to just acknowledge that, no, I've still not achieved everything I want to achieve. I've got some regrets, but that's informed the way I've shaped and design my life going forward. So like, for example, one regret that I had was that I didn't, ex- I didn't spend as much time with my children when they were young as I wished I could have. So I could beat myself up about that, or I could just excuse it, or I could deny that it actually ever happened. No, I own it. The truth is I didn't spend as much time with my children when they were young, but I can be a different kind of grandfather. I can spend, I can be intentional about spending time with my grandkids so I don't have to repeat that regret. There's the, there's the opportunity and the potential for progress when we own it, uh, we acknowledge it and then own it. I, I'm curious on that with you. You have grown kids, obviously grandkids. So even with those grown kids and realizing that, do you feel like you've had the opportunity to achieve some redemption even just with them in, the, in regards to that? Totally. You know, Part of it is just being willing to be human about it and acknowledge it. You know, I, I can remember conversations that I've had with my uh, kids um, not too long ago, a couple of years ago, where one of my uh, daughters was basically through tears telling me how I had impacted her life in a negative way. Uh, and basically by just not noticing her, you know, and, you know, my recollection is different than hers, but it doesn't matter at that point. Only her recollection is important. 
And what I didn't do, by the grace of God, defend myself. Mm. Uh, but I was just able to kind of be present with it and sit there with it and let her cry and let her get it out. And she said her words were, this has been enormously healing for me because you uh, held your space. That was the phrase she used. You held your space. You didn't defend yourself. And then I asked her forgiveness. And I think that's sometimes the missing piece, you know, to own it. And, and we're so tempted to say, yeah, that's true. And then we gunk up the apology by adding the word, but, right? But you don't understand how much I was trying to provide for your mom and your sisters during those years. Or, but I didn't have the tools available to me that you have today. None of that, none of that has any value in that moment. And, and to just say, look, honey, I'm so sorry. I know, I, I know that had to be painful. I don't know all the ways that that was painful, but I do see you. And I'm so sorry that happened. And I take full responsibility for me, for it. Will you forgive me? And, you know, with tears, yes. And embraced me. And that was just a little moment of redemption. And that's happened over and over again, because as it turns out, I made a lot of mistakes as a parent. Okay, Mark, I know you're smiling there. You're envisioning an entire Ziegler family show right off of that area right there. I, I, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I can't big. help myself, you know, and, but what I want to say is I want to get a plug in here. And that is uh, so many times we think of something like best year ever. And, you know, and, and Michael, you know this. I mean, I, I happen to be in a, a very intimate group that Michael was uh, uh, the leader of and, and really helped a bunch of men uh, become the men that we were you know, designed to be. And I'm just going to, I'm going to share something that's just general, but when we all got together and we shared our goals, okay, no big surprise. They were all professional. Like almost everything we share was professional, but at the end of a year of really being honest and genuine and going through the best year ever that Michael took us through in a, in a very, very patient way, I mean, we literally had guys that went from 10 goals that were all professional to nine goals that were family, personal, father. And so I just I, I want to throw it out there to say that, you know, that sometimes we're, we look at goals as just being professional, that it's it's about profit and sales. You know, but the reality is, is that we kind of believe and we all know that we do what we do for something much bigger than our businesses but sometimes we just need permission. And that's one of the things I like about your book, Michael, is that it's not just for C-level and it's not just for managers. But if you look at it from the perspective of what matters most, it can move the needle in what really does matter most, which is our, our family, um, even our faith and our legacy. Mm. And so, you know, so I just, I feel like I needed to say that because I've been through best year ever. I've got the, I've got the insider track because I went through it with you uh, personally. And, you know, and I, I think back on that experience of this transformation of, of it all being about professional. And then by the end, it was very personal in what mattered most. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, so in, in this aspect of goals, of really looking at goals, which, yeah, as you just talked about, Mark, we have so many goals that are a means to an end, professional. We want those great relationships. But you, you break these down into seven pieces. 
And, uh, and folks, big surprise here, go get the book because I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'm going to jump to number four. The first three, I felt like, okay, I understand that. I think people will get that, but you have the four things, seven pieces of a necessary piece for a goal is risky. And again, I don't know that, I mean, I know that we talk about anything worth doing is going to be difficult. It's going to have some risks. It's going to need more than us, but to look at goals that if I'm going to have a viable goal, it needs to include risk. Again, I don't know that that's an ingredient that I've ever seen purposely put in there. So tell us about that. Okay. So this is based on all the goal achievement research that we could find. And that is that unless a goal is risky. In other words, if it's a slam dunk, it's not risky. There's got to be the possibility that you don't achieve it, that you might fail. Those are the only goals that actually command your attention, that marshal your focus, that uh, really will keep you going when you want to quit because they ignite your imagination. Hmm. But here's what typically happens for most people, and certainly what happens in the corporate world, where because maybe you're operating in an environment where it's not safe for failure, you set a goal, you don't achieve it. So the next year, you're not going to have that happen again. You're going to set a lower goal, one that you can almost fall over. And then it becomes this big negotiation between management and the sales team, because the sales team wants the goal as low as possible. So they've got the opportunity to exceed it. What happens in a lot of companies, and again, the research bears this out, is that they find that they don't even achieve those small goals because they're not thinking about them. They just think, you know, this is a slam dunk. They don't really get focused. It doesn't require them to get innovative. They can kind of keep doing the same old, same old, but with lesser a lesser return. So I think there's three different zones, and I talk about this in the book, three different zones in which you can set a goal. So the first one is a comfort, the comfort zone. And we all know what this is. This is where we're comfortable. Like, no fear. We've got plenty of confidence. We're clear about how to achieve the goal. Why? Because we've probably done it before. So whatever the goal is, it's just an incremental increase over something we've done, uh, done before. The discomfort zone is where it gets really interesting. Because this is the place where we feel some fear. Mm-hmm. We feel some doubt. We feel some confusion. And those are actually not emotions that we need to uh, lean back from, but we need to lean into because they're markers that your goal is in exactly the right place. Now, think about this. If it's something you've never done before, if it's something really exciting, there's going to be the possibility that you're going to fail and you're going to feel some fear. You're probably going to be a little bit confused because you've never done it before. So, of course, you don't know how to do it, right? So, the confusion is natural, and it's a positive indicator that the goal is in the right place. Third, you probably have some doubt, and I mean primarily here, doubt about yourself. Do I have what it takes to actually achieve this goal? So that kind of mix is what the research says is the best mix for a goal. So it needs to be something where there's risk. Now, what you don't want to do is to go to zone three, which is the delusion zone. And the delusion zone is where, like if I said to myself, um, actually, I was I was talking uh, to a friend recently, and this was last year at the beginning of the year, and he said, I'm going to 10x my income this year. Now, this was a guy that was, you know, making about fifty or $60,000, and he was suddenly going to go from that to a half a million dollars a year. Is it possible? Sure. Is it likely? Probably not. He was being a little delusional. And I'm all for a big goal, 
but you got to dial it back from the delusional zone because what happens to those guys? And I honestly I couldn't back him off the goal. And now he just kind of threw goal setting out the window. Yeah. And that's what happens. People say, well, goal setting doesn't work because I had a goal to 10 X my income, or I had a, had a goal to learn, you know, lose 30 pounds in a month. that didn't happen. Goal setting doesn't work. Well, it's because you didn't set the goal in the right place. So you want it in the discomfort zone. Well, I want to share, uh, you know, a, a friend of yours, Michael, and, and a friend of mine, Ryan Levesque, he, he really drills in, emulate, okay, before you innovate. And we, we seem to all try to innovate our goal setting process when what you're really saying is we've got to emulate it. And you lay out a process that we need to emulate. And as Kevin said, you've got these like seven areas that if we'll emulate that, not try to innovate it, but emulate it, you know, we've got something that we can really work with. And so of the seven, and again, if you want to know the seven, you got to go out and buy the book. So the one that jumps out to me, Michael, that I want to just touch on or have you touch on is, uh, I think it is number six, is exciting. Okay. Now, I really like that because I was thinking about how many goals I've set in my life that are so not exciting. You know, (laughs) just not exciting. Think about it. Number one weight a lot of us put down, losing weight. But there's nothing exciting about that in face value. It means looking ahead to not eating what we want to eat and exerting ourselves when we don't want to and for what end. And so, which I imagine is a little bit of your point. So creating an end that is exciting. How, how do you create, how do you make these things that we know we need to do exciting? Or is that all part of the process? You know, unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah. So this is really kind of cuts to the heart of the difference between extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation. So extrinsic motivation is like, I want to lose 30 pounds because my wife says I'm overweight and I need to because she doesn't want me to die on her. Okay. That's an extrinsic motivation. I'm doing something because somebody else wants me to do it. Or um, I want to increase my sales 10% this year because that's what my boss expects. He's basically told me that I've got to do that. So it's something outside of myself that's important to somebody else, but it's not only not important to me, except out of fear, um, but it's just not exciting. An intrinsic motivation is when we do it for our own reasons. So if I want to be in shape, if I want to you know, lose weight, if I want to maintain where I'm at, and it's because I want to be around to attend my grandkids' weddings or their college graduations, that's an intrinsic motivation. That to me is exciting. I'm doing it for my own reasons. And so if you can find a reason that's intrinsic, it's much more powerful. And one of the ways to get to that is just to simply ask yourself the question, when you write down this goal, is it exciting? I had somebody in the uh, Best Year Ever course program who said to me, I've had this goal on my list for a couple of years now, and I had it due for this first quarter. This was in 2017 but I just can't get any traction on it. I said, what's the goal? She said, I want to, my goal is to catch up, get my bookkeeping uh, caught up so that I'm, you know, so I'm caught up on my bookkeeping. And I said, are you excited about that goal? She said, heck no. (laughs) I hate that goal. I hate bookkeeping. I said, okay, (laughs) that's a project, not a goal. Mm. So there's a difference between projects and goals. We're going to have a lot of projects during the course of a year. And some of those we'll get to, and some of those we won't get to, some of those we can delegate and get help on. But a goal has got to be something we're excited about. The funny thing about it was, once she moved it from a goal to a project, 
she got it done. She delegated it to somebody else and got it done, but it wasn't something that was just grinding on her day after day as she looked at this unaccomplished goal. I'm going to go off tangent real quick on that because I, I had not I had not read that in the book. That's really interesting to me. So would it be fair for her in looking at that that thing that she wanted, her bookkeeping done, that her goal, maybe to reframe the goal, her bigger goal was maybe peace and less anxiety uh, in her life. That was one of the many projects. Because I could get excited about that. Who wouldn't get excited about peace and less yeah. anxiety? I'm excited about that. Underneath there are projects that stink that uh, have to be done or can be delegated. I, I just... Thank you. I, I hadn't thought about it that way. I like that immensely. Good. Um, well, so on this goal, making a goal exciting, and we kind of have been hitting on this, and I think it's a good place for us to wrap, uh, which you do in the book, which is find your why. And we talk about this uh, a good bit coming to that, but to me, it speaks of motive, ultimately motive. So yeah. y- you spoke to the audience that we have here. This is an aspiring group, high achieving group, tens of thousands of people out there. They're here listening to this show instead of something else because they are aspiring. They do want to achieve. So I think that they all are aware of dreams, desires, and that they do have some motive. And yet I know there's also a lot of frustration when the year goes by, when two years goes by, and they've had this desire, they haven't done it yet. And they are aware a little bit of, I I obviously don't want it enough. My motive isn't enough. And so this is a, a question that I have often. And I think that we all do in personal development to some degree is how do you, the motive exists, obviously it has to grow uh, it has to grow. How do we manifest that as we're all listening to this going, okay, I, I got it, but I'm struggling with my motive. How can I get it big enough to make me do what I need to do? Yeah, there's several different things that'll help. One of the things that I take people through in the book is the process of identifying your three top motivations or your why for each goal. Mm-hmm. So for example, when I wrote my book, Platform Get Noticed in a Noisy World, um, I identified at the front end why that was important. I knew that that would establish my authority as a platform builder, as a blogger, as a podcaster and all that. I knew that it would probably open up some doors for me in terms of creating a membership site or other kinds of recurring revenue. So these were kind of my whys. And so I literally wrote those down because I understood something that's very important. And that is that inevitably in the pursuit of a goal, you're going to hit what my friend Don Miller calls the messy middle. Mm -hmm. And we've all been there. And it's when you want to quit, but you're too, too invested to stop, but you're not sure you've got the resources to finish. And you can flounder out there. You can get stuck out there. So if you can identify your motivations at the very beginning of the process, then you can review those motivations. And here's the important part, connect with them intellectually, and emotionally when you hit the messy middle. So for me, when I was writing the platform book, I was under contract with Thomas Nelson to write that book. Uh, The book was due the middle of November. I got to about October the 1st. I had a very busy speaking schedule. And I honestly was not making the progress I needed to finish in time. And I had the first draft done and I felt like it was really bad. I wasn't proud of it. I was very discouraged and I wanted to quit. So I'm thinking to myself, Okay, so maybe I've given the the royalty advance money back to Thomas Nelson. Maybe I'll just figure out something else to do. This is too big. I don't know what I was thinking. This is embarrassing, but I just need to get rid of this project. And then I remember I'd written down my key motivations. And at that time, I didn't narrow it down to, to three, which is what I teach now. But I had like about seven. 
So I grabbed that list and I started reading those. I closed my eyes and I said, do I still believe this intellectually? Yes. Can I connect with it emotionally? Yes. I want to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to persevere through this. So that's the value identifying those key motivations. Now, I'll tell you just another hack. And there's many of these in, in the chapter on motivations. But having a group that you share your motivations or share your goals with that can be there for you as a resource to give you feedback, to give you accountability is hugely important. Some people share that you should go public with your goals. You should share them with everyone. Uh, Derek Sivers has a very famous TED Talk where he talks about that and says you don't want to do that because your brain doesn't know the difference between you actually accomplishing the goal and you talking about the goal. So, And there's been a lot of research done on this. For people who pursue a goal they've talked about, they give up way too early because they think they've already expended the effort. So he says you shouldn't go public at all. My experience is that you should share your goals selectively with people that you want to be part of the process, who can hold you accountable, who can encourage you, who can be there for you when you need them. So those are just some of the ways that you can keep motivation alive. Your community has so much to do with it. So important. Mm -hmm. All right. So, Michael, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up in the heels of what you just said, because the name of your book is best year ever. You also have a course, best year ever. Now, uh, I took the course before I got the book because I just got the book a few weeks ago because the book actually came out of the course. And I know you teach a course called best year ever, and you've taught that course for, I think, five years. And so my question to you is in the wrap up. So let's, let's just treat this as a total wrap up because the question that's going through my mind and other people's minds is goal setting has been around for a long time. I've heard the concept. Mr. Zig Ziglar talked about it for decades. So why do we need a book? Why do we need a course to set goals and accomplish goals? Can't we just get a piece of paper out and go at it? You know, what's, why do we need a course? Why do we need a book to have our best year ever next year? Great question. And thank you for asking that as we finish. Traditional Goal setting is broken because most of what's taught and practiced in, in corporations, even in nonprofits for that matter, is just flat out wrong. It's like uh, the common sense stuff, like, like just one quick example, habit goals. I distinguish between achievement goals and habit goals. People say, if you want to build a habit, how long does it take? 21 days. You've all, we've all heard that. We all believe it is the gospel. That's not what the research says. The research says on average, 66 days. And there's tons of science out there because there's been a lot of goal achievement research. And so if we want to have our best uh, chance of succeeding with our goals, and I would just ask people that have used traditional goal setting, if it's working for you, great. In my experience now coaching over 25,000 people, it's not working. It's not delivering the results that it promises. So that's why five years ago, I took my experience but then I ran it through the filter of what is true about this? What is hearsay? What's my opinion? What does the science teach? And that's what this book covers. And that's what the course uh, covers. The thing about the course, too, is that it goes deeper than the book does. And even more uh, important is that it makes you work through a process so that you get out the other end of the chute 
and you've got a clearly defined set of goals that are framed up according to the formulas that the best of science offers to us that uh, increases your probability. Just one tip that I share in the book will increase the likelihood of you achieving your goals by 40%. And that's based on a widespread study that was done with people that did what I suggest and people that didn't do what I suggest. I got to give one visual real quick here, Mark, because I'm envisioning, I'm not a big uh, superhero, you know, like a Batman movie guy, but there was one that resonated and it was, I think it was called Dark Knight Rises, if I'm right. And it's where he's in prison or something like that. And the escape is getting well enough, strong enough to make this giant leap and grab some uh, handhold. Those who who knows the movie, you'll, you'll remember what I'm talking about. But it was a big moment in getting out of this pit, this prison or something was was working, working to make that giant leap. And as you're talking about this, I'm thinking that's how I've often looked at goals. And I would surmise that a lot of people have. And instead you're saying, no, no that's not going to ha- maybe one in a million. This, here's a ladder. It's not that difficult or it's not that it's, it's not rocket science here. Here's a ladder. And it's those pieces. I thought about it. I got the vision of it when you were talking about your own journey of being at a hard point saying, I'm going to give this up. And you went back and you got a couple ladder rungs there and said, no way I'm going to do this. And boom, boom, boom. And of course, he, as Paul Harvey would say, here's the rest of the story. Uh, amazing. Amazing. Man, powerful stuff, Michael. Thank you. You guys are a lot of fun. Okay, friends, with that message, we should all be amped up to truly make the next 12 months the best so far. Again, join Michael in his five days to your best year ever course at bestyearever.me and connect with all he has for you at michaelhyatt.com. Well, coming up next in show 517, we go behind the scenes with Michael to hear his personal habits of success in the seven spokes of the Ziegler Wheel of Life. Here are some excerpts. He believes energy doesn't just happen. It is caused. He cites how important rest is to him. Every night, he and his wife hold hands and share three wins of the day before falling to sleep. He reads four books per month. In his work with his employees, they engage in radical margin. You'll want to hear more about that. And his new joy, painting. So, hey, I look forward to being with you then as we inspire our true performance together.